Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Of Better Words. <laughs> right, no, I suppose we yeah. don't really need to say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. So this week we're going to share some recommendations with you. Um, we're going to keep up the format of doing like some recommendations and then like a little book club. Um, so yeah, we thought that was kind of fun. It's fun for us and hopefully it's fun for you too. Yeah, I mean, if it's not, let us know. We might stick to doing recommendations or change things up, but we're enjoying this for the time being, so. Or we might ignore you completely and just do what we want. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> that too, who knows? <laughs> no, let us know if you absolutely hate it. Um, so, Caitlin, do you want to go first? What's your recommendation? Sure. Um, my recommendation this week is... A sitcom that I have been watching uh, for free on 7 Plus. So it's called Splitting Up Together. um, And it's an American sitcom um, that aired uh, in like 2018 and 2019. It's only two seasons long. It was cancelled after that. Um, (laughs) Which doesn't sound good for like a recommendation, but... I'm quite enjoying it. I'm not finished the second season yet, but I'm quite enjoying it. And it came across my like radar because the two leads, the two main characters are played by Oliver Hudson, um, who, if you know him from nothing else, is Kate Hudson's brother, and Jenna Fisher, who is most well known for playing Pam on the American version of The Office. So in Splitting Up Together, they... In the very first episode, they say, look, we're pulling the plug, we're getting divorced, but we can't afford to, like, sell the house and change everything like that, and they both still want to be involved in their kids' lives. So they decide to do the week-on, week-off thing, but when it's a parent's week off, they just stay in the garage. So they keep kind of going in and out of the house as their kids stay in the house. (laughs) Um, That sounds so weird but funny. I know, exactly. Perfect for a sitcom, right? A weird situation. So they're technically still living together, but they never, like, stay in the same building, really, or whatever. But as they, are like, get divorced and are not living together but co-parenting, it starts to, like, reignite their love a bit and they get to know each other a bit better and everything. And there's all these hilarious jokes that's you know getting divorced was the best thing we ever did for our marriage and everything like that so it's quite fun that does sound fun I like that um so is this before or after she was Pam in the office after yeah so the show only aired for two seasons a couple of years ago um yeah and I remember hearing about it at the time because I quite like them both but recently I have been listening to um the office ladies which jenna fisher co-hosts and i also happened to listen to a couple of episodes of different podcasts that oliver and kate hudson had done just so it just kind of kept coming up and then of course because of the powers of algorithms and everything i noticed that it was on seven plus and i was like <laughs> oh i'll go watch that now <laughs> nice <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. It is amazing how many sitcoms they have in America. Like, I feel like there's just so many. It that, really I mean, and sometimes so they don't go anywhere. Exactly. So many like this that actually have, like, two really well-known people in them who have both been on other major successful sitcoms. And this one just got two seasons and, you know, might have been competing with, like, The Good Place or something. Who knows? that? Would, so it just didn't get. I don't know what it was competing with. That was just an example. But (laughs) they just do so many new shows every year and we only ever really get to see or hear about the ones that are, like, insanely successful. Yeah. 
No, it's fascinating. Mm. Um, so this week I want to recommend an author rather than like a specific book, but I will talk about a couple of books. So I actually recommended um, this author's most recent book on our IGTV live wrap up, um, but I thought it was worth revisiting for any like thriller fans out there or I don't know whether thriller is the right word, but they're more like those psychological suspense, mystery, sort of crime novels. Um, so the author is Louise Candlish. And I think probably at this point, her most well-known novel is Our House. Um, that was like on the bestsellers here for ages. Um, I suspect probably the same in Australia too. Um, and then her follow-up to that, Those People, is actually the one that I read first. And I've just read The Other Passenger, which is her latest 2020 release. Um, and it's all quite interesting the way that she takes um, what could be quite a mundane setting. So it's often just like it's that domestic crime novel genre of something that happens in a relationship, um, something that happens in the home. And she turns that into this really like twisty, interesting crime novel. Um, Those people is about bad neighbors that move in to a very wealthy street. And because everyone in the street hates them because they're quite arrogant middle-class people, um, they, you know, really want them out. And it's sort of like, what lengths will they go to, to get rid of them? Mm-hmm. Um, and then some stuff happens and then it's like, so it's sort of, it's, it's hard to describe it as a crime novel at first. Cause you're like, what's it building towards? So half the novel is like building towards the crime. And then the other half is the aftermath of it, which I think is mm-hmm. quite an interesting format. Yeah, I think so. Sometimes it's afterwards immediately and you get snippets of what happened before, but I do quite like that whole build up and then like in the middle is when the main event happens and then Yeah. That's- so part of part of why you're reading is because you're like, I wanna know what happened. Or like because obviously they'll she'll do it where there's some sort of indication of something going wrong in in like the prologue or something. Yeah. Um and then you're like, Okay, I know something goes wrong. I don't really know what happens yet. Like so that's part of the reason you want to keep reading um and then it just seems like normal people's lives but random stuff is happening and like it's very very clever and the other passenger was wonderful for that as well so that starts with police questioning someone over the disappearance of a man who he used to commute with on the river ferry in london um and then it keeps flashing back between that time now post disappearance and when they met, when he started having an affair, things like that. So it sort of all starts to work towards that point and then the two timelines sort of join up and then, yeah, kind of goes I from there. Like that layout as well. Yeah, it's really, really cool. And once I got to that point where the two timelines join, I literally could not put it down. I stayed up all night reading it. It was so good. But it's also, she's also really good if you're not into like gory crime murder mystery books which I'm not necessarily either I like mine to be quite character driven and this is brilliant so if you sort of like a twisty story but you're like "Mm, I don't really want like serial killers and all that sort of stuff then she's really good especially our house basically someone comes home and is like who are these people moving into my house and they're like we've bought the house fair and square like what the hell and then you're trying to work out what happened. How did they buy the house? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. What do you think you would compare her novels to? Like is there like a, if you liked something, you'd probably like? Ooh, that is such a good question and I don't really know. It's maybe like if you watched the movie or read the book A Simple Favour. Um, oh, yeah. Potentially a bit like that where you're like something's happened but we don't really know what or understand what yet. Like it's a little bit like that, Um, maybe like a little bit big little lies in that 
I think from the start of Big Little Lies, you know, someone dies, but you don't know who or what or how it happens. And then Mm. it's very character driven. So probably actually, yeah, if you like Leanne Moriarty's books and Big Little Lies, you'll probably like this. But I think what sticks out to me is she seems to be kind of the, the person who does that domestic thriller novel and I think a lot of people have started to do that afterwards but at least in in my mind from what I've seen she seems to be the first one doing that because before Our House was a big success she had like five or six other novels Um, and I have listened to an older one on audio and again it's very much like there's an affair going on and you feel like something's going to happen but you don't know what um so it's kind of a cross between a contemporary fiction novel and this crime edge to it which is is because it's all just in their lives like even in you know like in some of those other domestic-y crime novels whatever if there is a murder then that's like a bit you know it goes a bit more outside them but if it's just an affair or something like that then it kind of more it stays in the world like in their world yeah it's literally just and and a lot of it just happens in the home as well um which is which is what's so interesting is that you really only have like one or two settings and it just is the character development which I just find as a like it's a really good technique that she's used um because yeah when you think about it there's probably only like maximum three like main settings that you take yeah so it's it's quite interesting um and yeah definitely like if you like big little lies I think that's probably the best comparison I can make okay well those are our recent reads watching recommendation thingos now let's get into this wonderful 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 interview Our guest this week started her career at the Financial Times and the Times of London, which is definitely not too shabby. Since then, she's been published in major Australian newspapers, The New Yorker, Sunday Style, GQ, Vogue, Elle, Marie Claire, basically all the big names. So we are absolutely delighted to be chatting about the release of her second novel, Sorrow and Bliss. Welcome to Better Words, Meg Mason. Thank you so much for having me. There's nothing I'd rather be doing with my Tuesday afternoon. Is it Tuesday? <laughs> Is it Monday? No, it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. <laughs> I just had the exact same thought. I was like, wait, is it Wednesday? What's happening? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Plus one of you is in the UK and one of you's here. So it's it could be any day, but this minute I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> we're very happy oh, to have you. Yeah, we're delighted so for giving up some of your time to join us. So I guess we'll just jump right in. And I have to say, Sorrow and Bliss pretty much is just that. It's happy and sad and it's light and dark and it's funny. So can you just give us like a little blurb for those who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet? Sure. I mean, there's there's always sort of the plot blurb and then there's the actual, I guess, genre blurb. And so plot-wise, it's the story of a marriage. It's about a woman called Martha who had a sort of mental health episode I guess you would call it um a vague episode when she was 17 and after that point um nothing was really ever the same for her again and we meet her when she's 40 um and in all of those intervening years despite many attempts and many doctors she still hasn't been able to identify the specific nature of this um illness and because the quest has been so painful and um it's impacted you know her relationships and her career and the marriage which is where we start the novel she's kind of given up at some point on trying to find this diagnosis and just settles on her self-diagnosis of being difficult and too sensitive because whatever this thing is it informs every decision she makes every relationship she has every job she gets and loses um but then she comes across the diagnosis almost by accident by a series of events and the question then is whether if you've been missing the central piece of information about yourself whether there's a point at which it's too late and it would have been better not to know for all the things that it's cost you um which sounds rather grim but I hope as you say it is funny in between and then I think genre wise I guess we're sort of calling it an anti-love story because it is a love story but we we start at the end of a marriage and it's a coming of age 
about a woman who couldn't come of age until she was 41. So it's kind of, um, I guess, yes, solar and bliss, as far as we're talking polarity, there's there's a fair bit of it in there, I hope, which is, you know, light and shade. Yeah, I remember reading it, as we all know, I work at HarperCollins, and I finished it on my lunch break, and I ran over to Catherine, your publisher, and I said, I could tell you exactly which line made me laugh the most and which line broke my heart. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. That's such hype. Yeah, it's been lovely because oftentimes when you publish a book and, um, you know, people like it, but they don't love it, they'll say, oh, I read your book and it was great. But I think what's been different with this one is that when people have read it so far and we're still a few weeks from publication, but all of the early readers, they've quoted a really specific bit or a character. And that's so validating and amazing. And I'm so grateful for that because it's sort of it's lovely as the author to know which parts really specifically resonated with people. Not because I want to just try and keep doing that again and again, but just because it's like, oh, that's so interesting because they're usually all different. And it's interesting to see who likes who and who can't bear who. So um, yes, I'm so glad that's nice of you to say. And it sort of speaks to people's specific, what speaks to them in the book also speaks to their lives as well. So that must be interesting to have friends and other people say it was this line specifically that got me because. Yeah, I think so. And I've been thinking so much, I guess, in a sort of, you know, preparatory way, because authors and obviously we can talk about this if you wish but especially female authors always get hit with the how autobiographical is your novel question even if it was set on the moon which is fine because like it's an interesting thing and I always want to know it with other authors but I think that you know Taffy Broder's Acna has the most amazing response to it when she talks about you know it would be crazy to pretend that none of it's autobiographical in terms of whether or not you're the character and this is your story which in this case it isn't for me but of course this is a collection of things that I've seen and felt and you know it's a lot of recycling but I think that when we read the reason we ask that autobiography question is because if the author has succeeded we feel seen and I think it's interesting to know what parts of the novel have made people think that's me or that I had that you know what I mean it's that enthusiasm that I feel for so many books that I've read where um, I'm just like, oh my goodness, did that happen to the author too? Because how did she know otherwise? You know, I think that's where that question comes from. Absolutely. I think um, I had that situation recently when I read Pretending by Holly Bourne. And in that, the character um, goes through some issues around painful sex. And because that's something that I had experienced, of course, I felt this affinity. And it is that, that, moment of like oh well if they can get through this yeah then maybe I can too and it's seeing yourself and I mean that's obviously why we all think it's so important to represent different stories and different people and different lives especially like in young adult fiction as well so that you start mm-hmm. to see them as you're growing up because it really does have such a huge impact if you've never seen yourself represented in anything that you read mm. or watch on television yeah it's you don't even know that it's missing until you see it and then you're like oh that's what it feels exactly. like exactly and I think the thing I wanted to do I mean statistically every one of us has had some sort of brush with mental illness either experiencing it ourselves or being in a care role like you would do so well if you had managed to get through life without having had any interaction with mental illness at all but I think what I really wanted to do so passionately was to make sure that Martha wasn't just her illness even though obviously that is the plot of the book that her life has been defined by this thing and you know it's lovely when we sort of say oh I I have this or I have that but it doesn't define me but to an extent it does like if it's if it's calling the shots in your decision making if it's informing your relationships if it's attracting you to things you know um and, and you're not limited to being that but it is a huge part of who you are but I also wanted to show her as not just this thing and insofar as mental health you know can be painful and negative um and obviously it's done terrible things to her relationships and she you know people are having different reactions to how pleasant and likable she is I personally adore her but as a side note I think that I wanted to show her as a woman who is also a full person and she's also funny and she's also all of these other things as well as having this this illness because I think you want to be represented but not in this completely you know hegemon like you know this very singular way exactly because we're all we all contain multitudes 
so so true so the novel has been compared to sally rooney's best-selling novels and also phoebe waller bridge's fleabag which as a side note i literally started yesterday and i love it what so much doing this whole Finally. Time. oh my god <laughs> I know, literally everyone's reaction when I said I hadn't watched it. I finally found it on iPlayer and basically I just didn't have Amazon Prime, so I didn't watch it. (laughs) So yeah, I've just started it and I can absolutely see why the comparisons are made in terms of the storytelling and the style and stuff. But it's always very interesting to actually talk to the author about that. How do you feel about the comparisons? Is it intimidating do you like it do you not like it yeah I mean it's it is such a it's so mixed because on one hand it's incredibly complimentary and I would never be like can you please not compare me to Sally Rooney like man booker long-listed author that's offensive um (laughs) that would be ridiculous so I mean you can compare me to whoever you like and I will be you know grateful for that and I do see why that comparison is being made in terms of the language of the novel's fairly spare and it's fairly straight and unadorned in terms of its style. So I totally understand that. But I think especially with, oh, and I mean Fleabag, sure, just knock yourself out comparing it to that all day long. I'm perfectly, perfectly happy with that. But I think the Sally Rooney one is a really interesting one for me because um, completely putting aside, you know, the incredible talent and quality of that novel and her ability as a writer, I loathed those two books because I am old. I am solidly you know a whole generation older than her and I was horrified that um this could be the experience of any woman who's you know 10 or 20 years younger than me because also I got married when I was 22 so we're coming up well it's 20 years ago so this was a different world so when I read you know the kind of dating experiences and the and the all of the things that those novels were about I was so desperately I could, I was so confronted. And so in that sense, I think that I resist the comparison because, well, Martha's Gen X. I mean, I made her my age because partly actually to solve the maths issue, because in two of the previous books I'd written, I found the moving time forward really difficult. So I'm like, that's fine. I'll give her pretty much my birthday. Um, and then I'll always know how old she was at exactly whatever time we're dealing with. So that made it really easy. But um, just in terms of this to me is a really Gen X novel. And when somebody described it on another podcast, the um, Booktopia podcast, but they were so lovely about it, but they described it as this sort of, you know, amazing millennial novel. I'm like, no, 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 no. You already have Fleabag. You have Sally Rooney. This is for Gen X. So can you just, just leave this one? I mean, you're welcome to read it, but this is for miserable 40 plus sandwich generation heavily indebted reality by its lovers so you need to just back it off with the money <laughs> so no so I will totally take the comparisons but I think the Sally Rooney one's really tricky because I feel so mixed about her content compared to her style plus also can you compare someone to someone who's younger than them because it's like comparing yourself to an Olsen twin or something of the literary world I don't know if I can that's um a bit embarrassing I'm not sure I hadn't actually thought of that like when, we, you know, I'd seen like the comparison to Sally Rooney and I was just sort of, I thought about like the writing style and the way that the dialogue is and things like that. And I, I've read both of Sally Rooney's novels and I really liked them, but you're right. The characters are like 21. Yeah, not, exactly. Which I, is a world away from 41. And I think yeah. that Martha would have really different, I mean, she just has completely different values. Um, mm. and she and her sister have a very different relationship. Martha doesn't really have friends either in a way that we see very actively, like as in her absence of friends is a, is a theme in the, in the novel. And so I think all of those things, you know, and she's, she's married twice instead of, you know, she hasn't really dated much in between. So she has a just, she has a completely Gen X experience. So representing Gen X. <laughs> In terms of um, the writing style and stuff, though, does that make you more nervous to, you know, write your next book thinking, oh, my gosh, people are expecting a certain thing from me or do you just not think about it? Well, I mean, that's really tricky because, um, well, I don't know yet because I only, I literally have started another one sort of in the last few days, but only in terms of researching and thinking about it. But this one was the one that was a departure for me. So if you read my two previous books, I mean, the first one was nonfiction, so we won't count it. But the second one was my first novel. um, And that kind of was just 
you know, the only way to learn how to write a novel is to write a novel. So that was very much my, I guess, my training novel. Um, but then I wrote another book um, for all of 2018, which was a disaster. And so I got to the end of 2018, realized, I mean, I'd known for months that it was terrible, but I couldn't let it go because, you know, you get further and further into it and you, these words are, you know, stacking up and you can't bear to sort of trash it, but it was irredeemably bad. So I, I threw it away and I honestly felt like that was it. I didn't have another book in me. And it had been not just that I'd arrived at this point where I'd written an awful book, but the actual whole process had been awful. So you know, um, just every day that I was at my desk, it was, uh, it was miserable. It was joyless. I didn't enjoy what, what I was doing. I don't really, when I describe it, I have no idea why I pressed on anyway. So I sort of felt like it was really, truly over. And then the way that this novel emerged was, um, you know, I described it to someone as sort of really the funniest career suicide note ever written, because I didn't write this for publication. I wrote it truly for myself. Um, not, seeing it as a novel when I sat down to write the first scene because I'd failed to write a novel for a whole year. So I was definitely not getting back on the horse to any extent. I just wrote it because I decided to write something that I found funny. And so it was a complete absence of concern for the market or the reader because there was none, like no one was ever going to see it. Like I had failed. And so this was, it will be interesting to try and stay in that mindset because that is why I think I've written something that is, if I can say this in, I mean, just in relative terms, much better than what I've done before. Um, and I like it so much more and it feels much more authentic and it feels like I've found sort of my voice, I guess, but I can't use this voice again. I know that this was something I was sort of almost given to tell this one story. Um, and so I don't know what the next one will be because this was such a unique experience and I, I can't write another whole novel and fail in order to like achieve the next one. It'll just take too long. <laughs> I don't know, but it will be really interesting to see. It'll have to be something completely different again, I think. Um, I think it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, what does happen next after this novel. But I do have to ask, when, you know, you started Sorrow and Bliss or what would become Sorrow and Bliss just for you, like one scene or something like that, at what point, you know, were you writing it and working on it and going, oh, I'm going to have to send this to my publisher? Yeah, well, it's a funny story involving our good friend Trent Dalton. He doesn't actually know this, I don't think. He will because I'm sure he's a listener. But um, this is the first time I've ever... Friend of the podcast. Yeah, we friend of the podcast. Exactly. Sponsor of the podcast. Brought to you by Boy Fuller's Universe and all our shimmering skies out at the end of September. Um, no, so what happened was, is so I started this new thing in January and I decided not to tell a soul. So I told my husband and my children who would just, they looked at me with such sad faces because I had ruined most of Christmas and summer by crying about the end of my fiction career. So then in January, when I guess what guys, I'm just popping out to the, you know, to my shed to write some more fiction. But I told them that it was just something I was doing. It wasn't, you know, whatever, but I decided not to tell my publisher because she'd said to go away and have a break and try and rediscover the joy in it, which just, didn't seem like something that was possible but I decided that I mean part of the problem was that I just felt so surveilled do you know what I mean by no one in particular just an invention like readers aren't standing over you and the Goodreads community is not in your room with you being like mm, I don't know if I'd put that that's a bit three stars to me but that's honestly what it feels like <laughs> so um, I had to just put all of those imaginary readers to one side and you know I, I just started doing this thing but then it was just so unexpected that this all started to pour out and it was the only thing I wanted to be doing and everything else was an interruption to it and I just couldn't get to my desk fast enough and this you know images and material just was pouring out which is you know just the polar opposite of what the previous year had been like and I still hadn't told anybody by about April and then I had to go and interview Trent for a magazine and I was really hoping he'd be awful because everybody I'd met who'd met him or journalists and other eyes was like, oh, he's so lovely. And I'm like, is he? Is he really? Like, he's the most successful novelist ever and also really nice. Because it's I so I had the exact same thought. I was like, he won't live up to it. And then. No, even nicer than what you can imagine in real life. So anyway. Oh, I feel so left out. I'm the only one who hasn't met him. It's not fair. Oh goodness, no, it will. It will he, he's, you will. And he's amazing. And you'll be so disappointed at how lovely he is. Um, anyway, so he was talking about the experience of writing Voice Wallace Universe. And this is not the section of the interview where I compare myself to Trent. But all I'm put myself on his level. But 
he was saying, you know, it felt like the story he was meant to tell and he'd be down in his, you know, workroom at night and it would feel like he was being sort of, you know, he was channeling this thing and it was unstoppable and he felt, you know, like it was sort of electricity. And I was just, you know, nodding and being like, hmm, interesting, tell me more in my capacity as a journalist whilst internally being like, oh my goodness, that's how I feel. And again, I'm not Brent, but it just, it just felt like there was this um, momentum and it was this thing that all I really had to do was just sit down, you know, and it wasn't magical and it was still a struggle, but it was, as in, it was still a craft and something I had to do, but it just felt like it was this force. And so that's when I did send it to my publisher a few days later and, and it was sort of with a disclaimer to be like, I don't know what this is. I know that it's not fit for publication because it's so different from anything I've done. It's not what you'd expect from me. Please don't feel like you have to let me down gently because I know that it isn't, but I just wanted to show it to you. Because, and you don't even have to say anything because I'm going to finish it anyway, because I'm just having such a, a lovely time. So I really just showed it to her to say, it's actually true. There is joy in writing. And then as soon as I sent it, I was like, what did I just do? Because I just got instant stage fright. Like the very next time I sat down, I was like, Catherine's waiting for my book and she's going to show it to people, you know, and it was that I just burst that bubble. And so I just did nothing except, you know, worry for a couple of weeks. And then I wrote to her and I'm like, Catherine, please, can you just send it back? Just, just put it in the trash. Just don't read it, please. And she's like, it's too late. Um, And she'd read it and she wanted to, you know, she wanted to do something with it but I think there was definitely and she's sort of latterly confessed I think in a roundabout gorgeous amazing way that it took her a few days to work out what she was looking at as well because some of the characters were transposed from the previous manuscript but otherwise it was completely different so it was a bit discombobulating to sort of see these characters who she knew from here you know um the equivalent of kind of this was Berlin 1939 and now it's downtown LA do you know what I mean like it was that kind of shift of like we've moved it that much and she she said there was a certain period she's like okay I'm just gonna put that away for a minute and just process and I'll come back to it with fresh eyes um Mm -hmm. so anyway so that's how it all came around so I don't know if I could ever have that experience again but I think that whatever I am doing next it should feel a particular way like it may not be this way but I think as writers there should be some compulsion or some sense of some kind that you're doing what you should be doing because if it's that hard you're probably maybe on the wrong track yeah that's so true I um I want to make another comparison and I don't know how you feel about it (laughs) but when you described it as like you know career suicide novel sort of thing my first thought was Hannah Gadsby, Nanette, just her like, this is me leaving comedy and (laughs) it's just the most amazing thing. And I think it probably is that idea of just freeing yourself from any expectation. Yeah, isn't that that I'd forgotten about that? That was it because now we think of it as her breakthrough moment, but as far as she was concerned, it was her farewell to her. Like, you know, slogging and for however many years she'd been doing that, she's like, guess what, I'm out. And and it's true And, and it was, you know, that sort of... um. I was thinking about, you know, in Notting Hill where the guy, his restaurant has failed and the group of friends, they go there um, for that one big last meal and the tables, uh, you know, the chairs are up on the tables and there's no customers, it's just them and he just makes them this delicious thing. And that's very much how I felt that it was this last meal. I was going to throw in every ingredient that I had, whatever I liked, whatever was there, whatever was left that I hadn't used, that I had seen or felt or experienced or, and I was just going to throw it all in and if I found it funny or sad so in that sense even though it's not autobiographical it is the book that's probably the most it has the most me in it if you know what I mean um so people don't like it I'll take it really personally (laughs) (laughs) so we mentioned a little bit earlier that your first book was a memoir Mm -hmm. but then you moved into writing novels and obviously this is your second novel. How did you make that transition from nonfiction to fiction writing? I think, um, I think fiction writing was always my goal, but the first and most difficult part is obviously getting a publisher to um, let you try to do anything. And so um, it was just that um, I managed to, I was um, the managing editor of um, a weekend magazine at the time, just for a year. And um, I, it meant working closely with publishers and I just sort of um, managed to pull off a bit of a, it was really, it shouldn't really have happened. It was just one of those strokes of luck that I sort of just mentioned a book concept that I had for nonfiction and it became 
you um say it again in a nice voice um and so but they signed me for two and then I was allowed to do whatever I wanted for the second one but it was a good it was a good five years between because um the publication experience is not what you might what it certainly wasn't what I had expected it to be like which was just universal plaudits and just praise and money and it wasn't any of those things and adulation and so um I needed a little rest in between to kind of like summon um my summon myself and just um be I guess um willing to try again with something different and to put myself out there a little bit I mean that's such a hackneyed phrase but that really is what you're doing I think with any creative job and I'm sure with any job to some extent but it's a strangely public pursuit and so you get a lot of very instant feedback in a way that maybe someone who's preparing a quarterly bass statement doesn't I don't know they might have good com where you all jump on and rate people but certainly um yeah that's how it <laughs> felt. so I needed to take a little rest and then the idea for that book just presented itself and so that's kind of how I got going on fiction but yeah massive learning curve because it's such a different discipline Oh my gosh, can you imagine the banter on goodbassstatements.com where everyone writes their bass statements? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is very, very true though, um, especially in the age of social media where people, um, I mean, hopefully no one's done this to you, but you know, I know a lot of authors say people will just tell them that they don't like this or don't like that. I mean, it is that old thing that you only remember the bad ones, but people are so lovely. And the people who are the loveliest are readers who email me directly. Um, and they've just said the most amazing things. And they're still, you know, I still get emails about that um, that first book, which was about my sort of experience of being a really young mother by myself. I mean, with a husband, but the two of us and a baby in London, no family around. I was 25. Um, and it was pretty, um, you know, it was tricky and um, I didn't do a brilliant job of it. And so even, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I got an amazing email from someone saying that she'd stumbled upon it somehow and it had made her feel so much better and, you know, it had given her energy to kind of look at her marriage. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like that's, that's kind of outweighs anything that somebody could say on Goodreads about how I sound really entitled, which I have no doubt that I do. But I'm just like, you don't realize that at the time, because when it's your first book, you don't think anyone is ever going to see it. Like you just truly, even though I had sold it already, I just didn't think that it would ever see the light of day because it's too unreal that something you just write in your, in your room could end up in the hands of other people. Yeah. That is something that people have said to us before, that weird feeling where, you know, it's gone and, and all of a sudden your publisher is reading it and then, you know, people have pre-copies and then it's in the bookstore and that's exciting. But you're like, oh, hang on, now I can't get it back. I mm. can't change it if I want to. Oh, absolutely. And there are definitely things where if you see it in a bookstore, I'd be tempted to just take a pen and be like, I'm just going to change this, just this thing on page 134. I'm just going to go through all 50 copies and I'm just going to just write that differently. But no, it is a strange letting go because you're right. It starts with you and it's in your head for the longest time. And then the circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you sort of have to just unclench your knuckles and let it go at some point in that process, which um. Yeah, like it's sad, but it's also a relief. Um, and then it just belongs to other people. So I think, I mean, I feel more removed from the other two, obviously now, because it's been a while. But I think, so unless I feel quite protective of it because, I mean, in a way, but at the same time, it was so joyful for me that I, this sounds awful, but I don't worry as much what other people think of it because it, I just love doing it so much that I'm not so worried about the public reaction because if you don't like it, it already served its purpose for me. That sounds so selfish and I do hope people <laughs> like it and I'll be so grateful if people read it and buy it and all of those things. But I think it was just a hugely restorative experience for me so it can't fail latterly. Do you know what I mean? Like no matter what the reaction is. I think that's a really lovely way of looking at it. You know, it was for you. It did its thing for you. Your publisher happened to like it and wanted to publish it and that's just a bonus mm, exactly exactly and I mean I really obviously if especially if people pay real dollars for it I hope they like it and I hope it's entertaining and I hope it reaches the people that I you know would love it to reach which is specifically I feel like Martha is in this sort of post-hope period of her life and I was certainly at least in a professional sense very post-hope when I wrote it so I think it would be lovely if it found its way to people who are feeling a bit you know at that age or for any reason you can just be like wow okay so my decisions 
and life choices till now haven't actually panned out the way I thought they would. And now I feel limited in what I'm able to do about it. And that's kind of, you know, the narrowing of life as you get older. And I, I hope it finds a few people who might be feeling a bit like that and um, makes them feel like there might actually be hope on the other side of its loss. We'll see. We'll see. So just on sort of talking about your first novel and stuff like that, you did write a fascinating piece for Vogue Australia last year about public mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I'd really like to dive into this more with you because I'm I'm fascinated. And you quoted um, John Ronson's book there, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which mm-hmm. I've read and also find fascinating. Um, so in the piece, though, you wrote that basically since your first book, um, which, as we said, was a memoir of your experiences as a young mum, mm-hmm. you've sort of longed to unwrite it. And you said you put all your experiences, relationships, innermost thoughts and everything sort of on the page without really considering that, you know, it's going to be there and your children will one day read it mm-hmm. probably, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, So how do you reconcile those feelings now with the fact that the book will always be out there? Yeah, well, I think the reason that I wish I could unwrite it is not because I think it's bad and not because I um, wish that people didn't know, you know, that I hadn't given away so much about myself, but I was just so clueless and so blithe about what I said about other people um, and specifically about... um, you know, people that I know, friends and family. And I just didn't, I I had just hurt people. And, you know, it it was meant to be a funny book. And I, you know, when you're writing it and again, you don't think it will ever be seen and you're just putting down all your impressions and experiences, but no one gets a right of reply. It was my book. And I've often, you know, written about family and friends in magazines or I've interviewed them, but they have such a shelf life. Whereas a book, I think it was much more confronting when it came out to realize that it isn't ever going away, that it will be permanently available. And I didn't even think like with a few things that I said with friends and I can't even think, you know, remember what they were, but I remember thinking, Oh, I should just check if she's happy for me to say that. And they all were, but some of the things seemed so innocuous to me that I didn't think to check those ones with the person that involved. And they were the ones that the person was upset by. And I genuinely didn't anticipate it. And I felt so, I was just so sorry and I wished that I could take it back. And then of course there is, you know, the part that my children were, I think three and six when I wrote it and they're now 13 and 16. Um, and they haven't read it because I won't let them and there isn't one in the house, but they've Googled it and they're like, it says something on the back, like, Oh, you know, um, an accidental shortage of birth control. And so my daughter was like, was I an accident? And I'm like, no, you weren't an accident. You know, I mean, that is just awful that something stupid that I wrote, you know, because my husband and I, we weren't massive planners. Now, you know, I've had to have a real conversation with someone, you know, about that. And so that's the impact that it has. And so I think if anyone happens to be writing a memoir or nonfiction, just show it to every single person that you mention. And I think, I mean, this was also, you know, there's so much more talk now, 10 years later, about what we give away of our children's lives on social media. And this was, I think, Facebook was around, but I don't, I wasn't on it. And, but, you know, I wrote about my children. I would never, ever do that ever again. Um, I certainly wouldn't write about them now, but I wouldn't write about them then either Um, because it's just making fodder out of someone else's story and using something that's not my story to tell. So um, those are the parts of it I regret. And obviously um, there are things as well that I talked about in that piece. Like I did sound like a brat and I did sound sarcastic and cruel and all of the things that, you know, people sort of accuse me of. But I think because a book lingers, you are um, liable to be accused of things that weren't crimes 10 years ago. Do you know what I mean? So the conversation about privilege, which absolutely I shamelessly, I mean, shamefully failed at checking my privilege, but that wasn't part of the mainstream conversation 10 years ago. And it should have been, and I should have innately known it, but I didn't. And so now I I do seem more entitled and more privileged. And obviously I regret that too, but I just, what else is going to be a crime in 10 years that I've also done? Do you know what I mean? That I couldn't take back. And now I'm 42 and I, I hope I'm more mature and wise and I wouldn't write that book again, but I guess I just have to forgive myself. And I, I think everyone's within me who knows me, which is incredibly gracious of them um, and learn from it. And 
I guess each um, the only ambition I ever have for a book that I write is that it will let me write another one. And so I suppose I have to, if there's one thing that that book, I, I'm grateful to it is that it, it let me write fiction afterwards. So I think I've worked on it. I've done some work. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a, it's an interesting conversation to have because it seems that we are having conversations around this topic, around cancel culture, which was the overarching theme of that mm. piece. Um, we're having them more and more because of social media and the fact that, I mean, we've seen a lot this year. So in the year since you've written that piece as well, a lot more has happened with people, um, you know, pulling down YouTube channels over mm. videos that they put up 10 years ago. Mm. And and the, the first thing that I thought of as well, when you mentioned talking about your children was what we witnessed just recently with Kanye West saying some things that you think, you know, about his daughter. And I think everyone's first thought was that's going to be so hard to see. Mm-hmm. Which, and, it, and it's going to be around because he's such a huge, you know, mm. it's it hard enough to not. It's that. all indelible. And I think that we forget yeah. that, especially when we're writing, because, you know, in the actual process, like the function of it, it's a Word document and we delete and we put it back in and we, you know, we take it away and we add something else, but then it's printed and it is indelible and it's there forever. And the same as anything that you write online. And I think even though we talk about this a lot, we can still fall foul of it so easily because it is still technically early days in the big scheme of things. You know, but we are spending, if we spend vastly more time on there, like the likelihood that we will all make a mistake at some point is, you know, it's fairly high. So I, you know, email me if you want to know what it feels like. (laughs) But we are all human as well. And I think that's, I mean, clearly, like, as you said, you've done a lot of work on it. And I think for me, the mark of it, that this is where I have a slight problem with cancel culture in that I do think that we should have the capacity for growth Mm. and we should be able to show that. And obviously there are certain, that's a very nuanced discussion, which I don't want to, you know, present as a one-sided thing, Mm. but I do think it's very interesting now that you look back on that and you can acknowledge flaws in it. You can acknowledge good things Mm. and you can see that you've grown from it. I mean, I was a completely different person when I left high school. I believed completely different things. I just believed what my parents had told me, which was the absolute polar opposite politically from where I am now. I would be so embarrassed if, you know, if if I had that all on the internet, it probably is there on my Facebook page. Because youth is to sound sure. Do you know what I mean? I feel like you get less and less sure as you get older. But when you are that age and, you know, I, I sort of survived the toddler years with my children and I thought I knew about things. And, I mean, Catelyn Moran has her new book coming out in September as well that is a follow-up to How to Be a Woman. And the blurb is essentially I thought I knew what I was talking about when I wrote that and this is now as a 45-year-old woman what she actually knows you know about feminism and all of those things so it's heartening to me that she feels she had to revise you know such an incredibly successful book and a manifesto and that she's now you know that she might have a slight little bit of grimacing when she looks back at some of the things she sort of you know so boldly said um (laughs) but yeah I guess we're just all working it out even we we chatted to Veronica Roth Um, who wrote Divergent and you know Mm -hmm. even she was saying that because she wrote that so young there Mm. are bits of her fiction and I mean that's fiction and even then you look back at that and think oh I wish I could do that differently like we literally Mm. if you were going to publish anything or do anything and I mean we all are publishers in a way now online then as you said before you will make a mistake Mm. because that's just human nature and you will at some point have to look at that and look at your growth and hopefully grow and learn from it yeah exactly I mean that's all you can really it's just it's just especially because social mores feel like they're changing so much more quickly than they ever used to um Mm. I think that you can feel like you're just on really shaky territory and I mean we had a big debate um you know within HarperCollins about whether there ought to be a trigger warning on sorrow and bliss because it deals with mental health and there's um oblique kind of references to suicide a few of them but it's really tricky and we all decided not to um because it's not YA we felt like if it was YA you would want to be more careful potentially um but at the same time, crime and punishment, someone gets an axe put through their skull and there's no trigger warning on that of like, if you are triggered by axes, you know, used in homicide. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, have we as a culture got to a point where we we must be warned 
of what's coming or can we just are we tougher than that like if we're a lot of trigger and I don't know the answer to this and as you just said it's all of these conversations are really new so I feel nervous even discussing it but I just felt like I think we're tougher than we think and I think we're braver and more stoical and I think that maybe this is a Gen X person talking who's just survived six months of homeschooling or whatever it was and didn't think she could do it and was about to dig a hole and climb into it at the prospect but I think we are braver and tougher and more resilient than than what we think we are and we don't need to potentially be I don't know I sound like a mum but that's fine because <laughs> I am one so I'm sure I'm sure people are just like oh my goodness can you just shut up um <laughs> this year has definitely taught us all that we can do things that we didn't think that we could and I think globally we're learning a lot so yeah, yeah. Of the blitz. exactly exactly so um yeah we'll see and the way we got around or not got around but my decision in the end that was sort of um in tandem with the trigger warning is that I as it were redacted the name of the condition um because I didn't want um, 95% of that was for creative reasons that I wanted the mystery at the heart of that to remain and I wanted the reader to be as frustrated as Martha was but there was also a sense in there that if I was to name first of all it's fiction so the symptoms that I describe are not accurate you know they're an amalgamation of a dozen different things and so I was absolutely refused to put one true name on this you know on this condition and then represent it badly or unfairly or you know if it wasn't my experience I have no business representing it at all potentially so you know so that's how we got around it was to make it much more obtuse um and I guess to make it really front and center that it was fiction um purely so hopefully that has sort of created some protection in there for where necessary not for me but for other people (laughs) I'm out there I'm exposed (laughs) I actually really like that about the novel that you you know Martha doesn't know and then you don't know but you don't have to know because Mm. it's her experience anyway without that and that's just what it is Mm, exactly and I think it's funny because I thought there'd be a much bigger like when I told my publisher that's what I was going to do because originally there was a condition that I was thinking of but very quickly it didn't serve the story it couldn't I couldn't represent that accurately and responsibly in a way that also functioned within the story so I told her that I would be you know redacting it and I we can't do too many I guess it's kind of a semi-spoiler but anyway um I thought that there'd be more resistance. She was completely fine about it. And then I thought when people started reading, they'd be like, what are you doing? Like, what, tell us what it is. But apparently um, it comes to feel quickly quite normal that you don't know. Um, you know, sort of the first page, you're like, what's going on there? And then by page two that it's done, you just get over it. I don't know. Was that your yeah. experience that you kind of just accepted that you were not going to find out? Yeah, I did. I think some people, you know, I've talked to other people who've read the book and they were like, you know, making guesses and wanted to know. And it never bothered me that it was redacted because, you know, why is it my business to know anyway? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I think so. And just, yeah, to kind of, I guess, simulate the frustration of the not knowing because it's mental health in this book, but it could have been anything. It could have been any key piece of information and we all have them in a way. Like, you know, it could have been her birth mother, mother's identity if she was a doctor. It could be, you know, something from your past or some family event. It could have been anything, which is this core defining piece of information like a puzzle that we need and we don't have it so to me it wasn't really significant what it was it was just the fact that it was not known and now it is known that was what I wanted to explore rather than she had x condition and now she can take this pill and it will you know what I mean so I think that's kind of that's all why I did it but it'll be interesting to know and I will hide when people start discussing it on Goodreads (laughs) whether it was a good idea <laughs> All right. Well, one last question to wrap us up there. We've talked a bit about, you know, looking back and how we've all grown as people. And we <laughs> mentioned right at the beginning that you have written for so many different publications and had what must have been a dream role at the times when you were only in your twenties. So looking back now, what would you tell your younger self on her first day at work? Wear something else. Um, that would be the first one. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think that um, I think that I was fine for the first few years, and I think I did my best 
and I think that I wouldn't necessarily apart from I think to be braver and to ask for things that I wanted to do and not just naturally assume that someone was better at it just because they were more confident and asking I think that I would put myself forward more than I did but I think what was much harder for me and the person you know the former incarnation of myself I'd want to advise is the person coming back from having children because you're pretty hollowed out and your confidence can be quite shot and I think that that's the person that I'd sort of want to get alongside and just be able to coach and you know I guess give a sense that it is all going to be okay and even with DSA again a nice voice which I've just besmirched in the course of this interview it was truly written with the intention of wanting to tell other mothers who hadn't had the dream run, who didn't have a nursery. You know, my daughter had a travel cot set up in our in our bathroom because we didn't, you know, it was a one bedroom flat and it was full of the neighbor's marijuana smoke. And, you know, we didn't. London I, living, hey. Exactly. <laughs> I, didn't, I couldn't make friends because I was 10 years younger than everyone else. And so when people's experience doesn't meet that ideal, you know, that is what I wanted to you know, in part that it can still be all right and you can still be doing a good job. But I think for a long time, I just felt like I did it wrong. You know what I mean? Like in every part of my life, I just didn't do it right. And I think now looking back, I'm like, well, you didn't, but it's still okay. And it's redeemable. Everything's redeemable. And that is a line in the novel as well. Like you, you want to figure out why you keep burning your own house down. But at the same point, there are very few decisions that can't be you know, made to bear fruit of some completely other kind, you know, an unexpected kind. You just have to keep going. You just have to keep getting up, putting concealer on and facing the world insofar as we're allowed to. <laughs> yes, with a mask, hopefully at the exactly, moment. <laughs> I think that's really good advice. And, you know, what is the right way to be a parent or, you know, to live your life as well? I think, Hopefully we're getting to the point where more and more people are starting to see that there is no one way of doing something Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't be ashamed for living our life a different way. But I certainly think that, yeah, advice to my younger self would probably be similar. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think the other thing actually that I haven't talked about in any other um, other outlet apart from you gorgeous ladies is that I went off social media at the end of 2018 completely because part of the struggle of that novel had been trying to save some mental and emotional real estate or resource just balancing it between social media and trying to create and it was awful and I couldn't do it I just I don't know if I'm just particularly don't have the right predisposition for social media but the second I went off it I was just so much happier. And obviously there was a risk because I'm a journalist and you're supposed to have a, you know, a presence. But I just decided that basically I would write better. I chose to believe that I would write better and produce more if I wasn't diverting resources into that, you know, area, which was making me so unhappy. I don't even know why. It's just that funny, yucky social media hangover feeling that I had too often. And I didn't feel like I was in control of how often I picked up my phone. And, um, Anyway, so, you know, and you really don't have a lot of distraction to spare, like you need all your focus for something like this. Um, And so as soon as I went off it, it was just a revelation. And for three days, I kept picking up my phone to look at it. And then you're like, oh, there's nothing there. So I'll just put my phone down again and go back to what I was doing. And now when I even see Instagram, I'm like, oh, are people still doing that? I thought, you know, I just can't (laughs) believe it still exists. But I think, I mean, but it had to be all or nothing for me. Like it, it couldn't be, I'll just use it less because there's no less for me. It was so, I was on it and I was terrible at it. And I just to go off it completely was such a liberation. And I do truly think that the what I was able to produce afterwards in Sarambus is not unrelated to that decision. So it may not bear out and it may not sell because I can't shill it online, but um, we will see. Hopefully the work will do what it's going to do anyway. And um, I'll just keep living a very small, tiny life of me and the four people I know. I don't think you have to worry about that. I think everyone else will be sharing it on Instagram for you. It sounds like in a way you sort of preempted our um, lockdown small world states as well. I think a lot of people since this all happened have also made the decision to at least drastically reduce their social media. I know I have because it does just leave you feeling a bit gross when you open up Facebook and it just makes you irrationally angry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, I just felt like I, 
I had all of these sort of um, invented relationships with the people that I followed, where people that I would never meet who have no idea that I even existed. And yet I found myself thinking about them on a daily basis and having some sort of mental dialogue with them. And I'm like, I don't know these people and I have such limited potential and resource and energy and creativity. Why am I using any of it in this it's just a void. It just doesn't produce anything. And I think, you know, I mean, there are jokes about consuming content all through the novel, as well as grammar jokes and all sorts of other jokes. But I just do truly feel that if you're consuming, you're not creating and you need to choose. Like you can't keep saying, I want to write a screenplay. I want to go to art school. I want to do all these things. And then you have nine hours of Instagram on your screen time report. Like, do you know what I mean? Like we do have to be so brutal with ourselves of how much do you really want it? Do you know what I mean? Because if you're not doing it and, and that's all a novel is, is a 1 million decisions in favor of the novel. So as in, you know, it's, I will do this today instead of doing this thing. I will sit down today and I will stay in this chair, even when I am so confronted by my lack of talent that's all it is. It's just a daily choice, like a marriage or anything. You just keep choosing over and over again in favor of that thing. And so I think for me, I just had to choose this over Instagram because as Martha, in fact, says in the novel, I don't think we'll get to the end of our lives and on our deathbed be like, I just wish I'd consumed more content. <laughs> that is the perfect note mm. to end on. Notwithstanding, um, sorry, disclaimer, podcast <laughs> notwithstanding because they are educational <laughs> And I grew up in a television-free home, except for where a show was educational, we were allowed to watch it. So same goes with podcasts. They get a pass as far as I'm concerned, especially this one. Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> Honestly, podcasts have kept me sane. Completely. When... And audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for joining us online. My um, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was so nice to meet both of you as, as in real life as we can possibly be. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we really, really appreciate it. And for, you know, just to give people context, we really enjoy your um, writing shed slash bookshelves in the background of in the background of this recording. It looks amazing. Oh, so thank you. hopefully, hopefully it's a, a good environment to um, write the next novel. Yes, we will see how we go. With luck. Hopefully I'll be back here in a year or two years or something chatting to you again. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.